Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're in John 18, and uh, we're going to look at the pre-dawn trials of Jesus. He was arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've, we've seen him present himself to uh, Judas, and, uh, and, and I pointed out it's not Romans that came to arrest him. It's the temple police with some of the high priests, and then what they call these who who parates, these, these attendants, and, and my Bible translates it as officers, this, and you're going to see those same um, who parates, those same officers uh, through some of what I read here. They're not officers, they're, they're helpers. Uh, the word who parates means under rowers. And what it was, the term comes originally from those Greek warships, which are called triremes, and they're these long, sleek boats where they had a sail, but they also had three rows of oars. You can imagine. Uh, and then they'd have this long front thing uh, that would ram other ships. They would T-bone a ship and split it in half. And I mean, it's, it's quite an effective battleship. Well, the top, you can imagine the top row of rowers, that's the better seat. The middle rower, not so good. The person in the bottom row, that's the huperites. <laughs> The under row, you know, every bit of sweat and whatever else comes down on you. So you are not the high guy on the, on the cut. So to call it an officer, to me, is ludicrous. I mean, how do you get to that point that you use the word officer for that? <laughs> you got under rower. Helper is as high as I can go with it. Uh, so what, we, what we've got here is, is, is people who are these, these young men, these religious men, uh, uh, by and large, with the Pharisees, think ultra-Orthodox. And they're the helpers, and they're also helpers for the priests. They, they're, all of these come, they arrest Jesus, and they take him to the high priest's residence. If they found the high priest's residence. I've been in the high priest's residence. It's amazing. Uh, we'll go there this time, again, when we go to Israel in, May, in April. Uh, they have built, uh, this, the, the city has built a huge platform over this and built entire uh, buildings and structures over it. It's such a valuable thing. You know, you, don't, you, don't, you aren't going to damage that. So they built this whole platform and then all of the city is above it. But you go underneath and you see this elaborate, uh, extensive uh, complex of rooms. Uh, now, none of the rooms are huge because you can't make huge rooms in, in that technology. Uh, you can only go so wide. But there's many of them. They have beautiful mosaic floors. And one of the, the, the real giveaway is it's just full of what's called mikvahs, these ritual washing baths. You know, the three steps down and the three steps up, and they're, they're, they're all over the house. And the, the main meeting room is, is there with, by the way, the frescoes still on lots of the walls. The, the paintings, the, you know, fresco, frescoes when you paint uh, into, into wet plaster. Yeah, okay, so you still see the painting on the wall and the, and the design. And the courtyard where Peter waited with the huperites and, uh, and some, of the, some of the household servants warming his hands, that courtyard's still there. You can stand in it. I have stood in it. 
And it's not far from the meeting room. And so Jesus is brought to the complex. I think Caiaphas lives here. Uh, Annas lives here. Annas is the old man. He's the father who's really in charge of this thing. Uh, but he's, he's brought, Jesus is brought, first of all, to the old man, who's not technically the high priest. His, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is. But he's really the power behind the throne. He's the head of the family, and he just keeps having his various sons appointed because the Romans keep shifting him so they can't politically gather any f- power. That's the kind of the, the game that's going on. Let me, let me put in uh, another statement here. Don't think... Uh, a godly line of Aaronic priests. The priesthood began to be sold in Israel in Alexander the Great's time, 300 and some BC. When he conquered them, he started the process, and they start selling the high priesthood to the highest bidder. So this is a foul system. It's, it's, a, it's a power system. It's families that are buying in so they can get money off it. And Annas has done that big time. I mean, you recall, Annas is, uh, uh, is, is the one who first, he didn't, wasn't, this wasn't a pattern or a, or a process, but who first moved the sale of the animals, the, the oxen and the sheep and the doves and then the money changers, and opened up what was called the court of the Gentiles and had that, that, all of that sales going on in the courtyard. You remember this? What happened? How did, how did Jesus encounter that uh, courtyard? He shows, and this is the very first thing. This is only months or even weeks after he has been baptized in the Jordan River. He's gone north uh, and, 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 and had a short time up in the Galilee. And then he's gone down to Jerusalem for Passover. Walks into the temple and here are all of these, these animals in, in so, these makeshift stables. I read in uh, one place, uh, uh, Josephus says there are many as 3,000 animals uh, on, that court, or in that courtyard. The, the, the huge court of the temple is 36 acres. It's still there. You still walk on it. It's still walk on the same stones. 36 acres, so you got all of these animals and all of this stuff. What did Jesus do when he encountered this? He, he made himself persona non grata. He, 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 began, he made a whip of cords and began to whomp on these animals, saying, get out of here, which created some sort of stampede. So I, even, you know, I can see the oxen stampeding. I don't think sheep stampede, but they do get f- confused. And, and so they're, blah, 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 and, and, and you've got all this going, and you've got doves flying around, you know, and who knows what. And then he kicks over the tables, which have money on it. That must have been a scramble. That's, what, what did he do? He attacked Annas' income. Because Annas had moved these things onto that platform so he could take a cut. That's the whole point. This is an economic move. He's got the stuff up there so that he can get a percentage of their sales because of the location. So he hates this Jesus from the beginning. So there's a, I, I want you to see there's a grudge here. A grudge with Annas. I'll show you a little later. There's a grudge with the Huperates and a number of these, these, these Pharisees. They hate him too. There's personal grudges in the room. Jesus is brought there and he's tried before Annas. And something happens in the course of this that's, 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 that's shocking. It becomes very savage. It gets really ugly beyond what you would expect. 
Something enters the room, as it were. A spirit, a presence, a violence, a viciousness. You think, where does that come from? How do elders of Israel, how do they suddenly begin to behave like that? I actually think there's something happening. I think there's a spirit there. And I think it's something we need to not only watch and look at, but recognize the danger of it. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and open our ears and eyes. We would see Jesus. We would see the, and understand the word of God. Lord, we are your disciples. We are following you 2,000 years later as, as, as much as we know how. We would be today just like Matthew and Mark and Luke and all of them, Lord. We would follow you. So teach us and feed us. Grace me to get out of the way and let us see you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. All right, we pick up in John 18, verse 19, as Jesus then is standing before Annas in a, what a, is a pre-dawn trial. It's not a, former trial, a formal trial at all. It's Annas having his interview. So here we are. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the huperites, see, does, does you say officers or something there? Yeah, one of, those, one of these, one, these helpers, standing nearby, struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evilly, if I have testify of the wrong or the evil, but if rightly, why do you strike me? A, a Jewish man in Israel was absolutely innocent until proven guilty in a proper court. And to do that, you had to have two or three witnesses bear consistent testimony, and, 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 and you are proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. This whole thing has been a miscarriage of justice from the, day, from the moment it started. The first thing they did is they grabbed him and they bound him. You are not to bind a person until they are proven guilty, until they are innocent. In fact, when you come into a, that court where you're being tried, you're not bound. You're not guilty. You are there as simply a citizen of Israel, and you are, you are bearing witness on your own behalf, and you have others against you, and until you're proven, you're not. But they bound him, and they bring him bound into Caiaphas' uh, rooms, or this gathering room I mentioned. And uh, what is Jesus asking for? He says, I have taught openly all over this nation. I have always taught in synagogues, and you've had your, 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 your spies your, your parates, they've been with, following me everywhere. And there was a, undoubtedly a group of them in the room. He said, so you've got witnesses. So if you want witnesses, don't ask me, ask them. And then this, 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 probably this young man hits him in the mouth. Uh, and then he says, if I've, if I've spoken evilly, if I've taught it, testify to it. And if not, why do you strike me? He's calling for his rights. He's standing as a, as a, as a, as a Jewish man 
in what should be the high priest's residence and asking for justice. And escaping the trap. When we read the account of what happened to Jesus after he was arrested, we encounter an element that is very hard to explain. It's furious it's the furious hatred some people felt toward Jesus. They hated him with a ferocity that is just not reasonable. And I'm going to show you a little later how, it, how that trial developed further. After all, he was a good man. The kind mothers want to have bless their babies. He wasn't a violent criminal or a thief. He was a rabbi who taught in the synagogues and courts of the temple. He didn't do things in secret. Anyone could come and watch and listen to him. And it was a very normal part of his ministry to heal the sick and deliver people who were tormented by demons. So how does a person become so uncontrollably angry at someone like that? It doesn't make sense, at least not until you look at the situation from a spiritual perspective. He's going to be taken from Anna's, uh, well, I don't know that he's moved. I don't know if he goes from Anna's apartment into that meeting room that I mentioned, uh, where Caiaphas was with other elders uh, and a larger group, um, it, but, or whether Caiaphas just came into that room. I don't, I don't know which it is. But he's going to go into another trial which is still in the pre-dawn hours. And, and in Israel's law, you were not allowed to have a trial until after the fourth watch, until the sun rises. You cannot do things in the night. You cannot do things in a hidden time. It must be open uh, when, when, all, when all are aware of it. So this whole thing is illegal. It, from what I can see, I think Caiaphas has invited certain elders once he can count on to find a good guilty plea, I mean, a guilty uh, verdict on Jesus. So he gathers this group, and as Jesus testifies in it, and I'll, I'll show you that, it, they, they become ever more vicious, and it really gets ugly, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe it. How does that happen to a man like that? And why does it happen? All normal people become angry at times, but what is it that causes a person's temper to flare to the point where they become savage. What makes a person hate someone else so much that they're willing to lay aside all sense of justice, violate the very laws they swore to uphold, and arrange for someone to die as painfully as possible? Because that's what it was about. You know, Pilate says, you, have, you can put people to death you know, with your laws. And they said, no, we, we, can't, we can't kill them. They wanted him executed on the cross. They didn't want him stoned. They wanted him executed on the cross. As we read the accounts of the pre-dawn trials to which Jesus was subjected, there's a horrible element of cruelty, of hatred, that creeps into the picture and grows as the hours pass until we watch people spitting in his face, beating him with their fists, slapping him when he's blindfolded and his hands are tied behind his back. It's just not normal. Some force has entered in and seems to have taken control of them. And yes, it shocks us all to read the sort of things that were done to Jesus. But if we're honest with ourselves, that type of fury is not entirely unfamiliar to us. Human history is filled with examples of it. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't have to look back into history to find examples of that strange fury. Many of us have been victims of it. And many of us have felt that fury come over us and propel us to do or say things we never thought we would. 
you want to look at people who do some of these things, and you want to say to yourself, well, they're different kind of people than I am. They're made out of different stuff. They're, they're, they're subhuman. They're, and, and don't we love to really roll on that? They're scum of the earth. They're just garbage. I mean, they're, you know, and, we, and, and the idea is, I would never do something like that. I'm of, a, I'm of a better make. I'm made out of stuff that just would never, never fall into some kind of trap like that. I wouldn't do that. People like that. And, 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 and this becomes hard when it's whole nations. When whole cultures sometimes rise up and, and it becomes a tremendously ugly and virulent. And you think, how do people like that do that? And you must say, well, those people, those people. We want to separate ourselves from them. We want to, we want to think of ourselves as a different kind. Today we would follow Jesus through those pre-dawn trials at the high priest resident and watch as that strange fury enters into the situation and takes over. We'll try to identify that force and think of examples where we've seen it at work. But the main goal of our study will be to consider how that influence gains entry into our lives and how to stop it from ever coming in again. We want to lock the door on that uninvited spirit. Annas questioned Jesus about two subjects, his disciples and his teaching. John doesn't tell us what questions he asked about Jesus' disciples, nor does he tell us what Jesus answered, if, if he said anything at all. Annas knew a number of prominent people who had become believe, come to believe in Jesus. He knew John. We, we, John can walk into his residence and into the meeting room, and that's how well John knows uh, Annas. And therefore, likely his brother James, he may, he may have known their father Zebedee, you'd think so. Lazarus and his sisters were a well-known family in Jerusalem. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, had become a disciple, as had many religious leaders. Annas may have been seeking for names so that he could arrest them later, or he may have been shocked and curious as to why people he respected were following this Galilean rabbi. John only reports Jesus' reply to the question about his teaching. He told Annas that none of his teaching was secret. He had taught publicly in synagogues in the courts of the temple. In fact, various representatives from the Pharisees had spied on him throughout his ministry. And some of those spies had been present at that preliminary interview. So if so, it would have helped to explain who, to whom Jesus was referring when he said, I have spoken boldly to the world, I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather, and I spoke nothing that was hidden. Why do you question me? Question the ones who heard what I spoke to them. He, then he added this revealing statement. Look, these know the things I said. I think he, he's talking about people in the room. They know what I've said. You want a testimony about what I've taught? If you want to, you're putting, putting me in trial and trying to find blasphemy, are you? Ask them. Have them testify. Let's see if you can get two or three witnesses to testify to my blasphemy. In fact, it was one of the men who served as a subordinate to the priests and Pharisees who reacted to that statement and struck Jesus. The word John used to describe that blow means he either hit Jesus with a stick or more likely slapped him in the face. In a proper Jewish trial, a person is considered to be innocent until proven guilty. And to be proven guilty, there has to be the testimony of two or three witnesses in effect. Jesus, by his statement, was suggesting that Annas asked two or three of those present who had heard him teach 
to testify to what he'd said that was either heretical or criminal. He was suggesting they follow the proper course of action. Let me read to you a little bit. I'm going to go to Matthew 26. After, after he's Caiaphas, or after Annas is done, uh, after that kind of little out, that outburst of hitting Jesus, he's taken, either taken to where Caiaphas is or Caiaphas comes to where he is. But you have a gathering. And as I said, it's in the pre-dawn. Uh, in my notes, I explain that there actually apparently was another gathering after dawn in which the formal decision to send Jesus to Pilate takes place. I give you the references, but I'm not going to take the time with that. But listen to what happens in that gathering. These are members of the Sanhedrin. These are some of your elders of Israel. These are dignified people. Basically, I would assume many of them are nice people. They're the, and it says, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. There's a, the group that have been invited want him dead. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. You remember that statement he made when it was his first visit. That's when he turned over all the temple. I mean, all the tables and all the animals and the whole bit. And he said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. What was he talking about? His body, yeah. By the way, by the way, let me just say something. You have all of these theories in which they keep us slandering Jesus' character, saying he was married to Mary Magdalene and all this kind of garbage. Look, look, did you read the statement I, we just sailed on by? They kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. If he was an adulterer, if he was a, a fornicator, it would have come out right there. They've been spying on him. They've been following him. They've been looking to get him all along. You got the best in town. And what does it say? They did not find any. They couldn't, they couldn't among a group that hates his guts, find anyone with a testimony against his character. Come on, people. This guy is clean. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Don't listen to that kind of garbage. It's just people trying to sell books. And anyway. They do too. This man said, uh, and the man said uh, he's able to tear down the temple, build it up. The high, and that obviously is ludicrous, and so they just go on. The high priest stood up. The high priest is going to take matters in his own hands. This is Caiaphas this time, the son-in-law. He says, do you not answer? What is, it, uh, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's referring to Psalm 2. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Son of God? And Jesus, either, if he doesn't answer, it's only to protect his safety. And so he's, he, he, he must answer. And boy, does he ever. If we're going to do this, let's do it. And he answers, and <laughs> listen to what he says. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at, at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. He's referring to uh, Daniel 7. 
He's saying, I am the heavenly son of man. I will, you will see me and all, dominion over all the earth is, will be given to me. And, and boy, Caiaphas, will you not like that day. Chi, look at, and then now, Caiaphas goes into a real act. What does he do? It says he tore his robes. He grabbed this, his robes at the top at the hem and he goes, rip. He rips his robes in this violent way. And you know he's yelling. It's like me. And he blasphemed. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard this blasphemy. Is it blasphemy for a Jewish man who is indeed a physical descendant of David to claim to be Messiah? Is that blasphemy? It is not blasphemy, not blasphemy at all. In fact, a whole bunch of people over history claimed to be the Messiah, and it got Israel in all kinds of trouble because they'd follow him. It wouldn't have been blasphemy, but he's, he, we've got to find something. This is the best he can come up with. Now watch what happens. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. And then they, and here's the verse, they spat in his face beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? And what they don't say, but Mark does, is he's blindfolded as they do this. That's a, that's a mugging. They've gone wild. They've turned savage. How does a room full of dignified elders end up spitting in someone's face? beating him with their fists, and daring their blindfolded victim to prophesy who did it. The man's hands are tied behind his back. It sounds like something a drug-crazed gang would do. Normal people are suddenly acting in outrageous ways. They've turned into a mob, and I think the explanation is an uninvited spirit has entered the room and has access to certain hearts. There were individuals in that room who had harbored a growing bitterness toward Jesus for years. I mentioned Annas. I think, I think you, you touched his money. Once Jesus shuts down that business on the court and makes it awkward, you've just cut, you've cut his income badly. Remember, he put it back. And, when Je and on the Monday of the final week of Jesus before he's crucified... Jesus comes to the temple again. This is after Palm Sunday procession and all that. I mean, it was the next day. He comes in and there those things are again. What did he do again? Over they go. And did it again. And struck right at Anna's source of income. The other thing is, these huperites, these helpers, these ultra-Orthodox, I think, uh, uh, young men, have been following him where he goes. And they, if he's in a synagogue, if he's in a crowd, he's somewhere, there's watchers all along, listening, watching, watching, trying to find something. And on occasion, they've challenged him. They've challenged him theologically. Remember this? You know, uh, who's, uh, oh, they come up with, uh, if, if, a, if, a, if a woman married all these men and they, she, she dies, whose husband is she in heaven and all this kind of stuff. And he just, he always humiliates them. He's really good. You just do not want to argue with Jesus. And then he asks them, let me ask you a question. Remember that one? And that was the one where he, where he says, okay, so if the Messiah is David's son, then why does David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He says, how does David then call him his Lord if he's his son? And they're all going, 
We'll work on that. <laughs> what is it? He's divine. He's not only the physical son of David, he's also the divine son of God. That's the answer. And they, they just don't know what to do. So he humiliated them a number of times. And, and situations like this, he's in a synagogue and there's a man with a withered arm. It's the Sabbath. And he, he looks around and they're all waiting. These, who, these guys are waiting. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Because they've decided that that's work and you can't do it on the Sabbath. And he looks around, and it says Jesus looked around in, in, in anger. I mean, his eyes spark. He's furious at the lovelessness, the coarseness, the legalism, the, the smallness that would say, let's leave this man in his withered state because it's the Sabbath. You don't want to do something like healing on the Sabbath. And he looks around at them, he says, <laughs> and then he, then he turns to the man, and he says, stretch out your arm. And the man's hand comes out normal. They hated him. I want you to see that. There's grudges in the room. There's grudges in the room. Grudges? Grudges open you up to something. Here we go. Recognizing the unthinkable. If you've ever read or watched descriptions of what people do to each other in war, I have no doubt you've never forgotten it. We try to put those images out of our minds, but what we, what we read or watched, read or watched, was so unnatural so inhuman that we can't seem to forget them. They linger in the back of our memory and frighten us, especially if they were done by people like us. In some cases, we're reading about people who had been normal, law-abiding citizens only a short time before. People who found themselves doing monstrous things under the pressure of violent combat. It's like something snaps, a switch is thrown in the mind, or someone takes control and makes that person do something they would ordinarily despise. And that makes us ask ourselves the question, could that ever happen to me? The subject is so uncomfortable, we usually avoid it. We try to comfort ourselves by saying that those people did such things that they are very different from us. We would never do such things. We attribute it to mental illness, and in some cases it is. But not all. And that's why we avoid it. It's unthinkable that it could ever happen to us. This fall, uh, the public broadcasting put on a, a special uh, by Ken Burns. He does documentaries, the Civil War and other things. Uh, he did, a, and it was 20 hours on, on Vietnam. Now, I have a, a, a TiVo and an antenna. I don't, I'm not on cable, but I, I pick up PBS and... I pick it up in clear HD. And so anyway, I taped them all. But then I didn't watch them. And I thought, because you've got to understand, I'm out of that era. In fact, I stood for the draft at one point and, and, and on the lottery. And I, they missed me by two days. And uh, I can't say I was sorry. I wanted to just tell you, but I did. I stood for it. And uh, my friends went. I watched... I have grown up, I've lived a life with, with uh, people who have come back from, from Vietnam and are scarred by it. We, we are still, still part of our generation. Um, and I've had people tell me, talk to me, and confess to me things that have, were done in war and done in situations um, that they can't forgive themselves for. Uh, I've had a number of things where, where someone will come and just say, Pastor, I've got I've to get this off of my shoulders. And they tell me what they did. And uh, can, the question is, can God ever forgive me? Because I can't. I can't forgive myself. I can't believe I did that. 
And as you listen to the, some of, the, some of the, 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 the testimonies, and these are men just like me, like any of you, and the, the perfectly good men, raised in families, they often show that. And by the way, in the, in, the, in the film, they showed both the Vietnamese soldiers, they interviewed Vietnamese as well, as uh, American soldiers. And they, of course, had the same experiences. They also were full of regret. They were sh there's points where they're just shocked at the things that they did and that were done. And these men on the other side are just shocked at the things they did and, and, and couldn't believe that that was, was part of them. And, and, and now they're peaceful. <laughs> and if it's, how does that flare like that? What happens? You, you really can't say that they're, they're, that they're cut out of some kind of cloth you're not. What you can, what, 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 what the, the, the truth is that under the right sort of pressure, unless God protects us, and he can, then I'm going to get there. But unless I've been careful and, walked in, and I'm, I'm walking in the protection of the Lord, those pressures can cause me to do things I can't believe I would do or say things to people I never believed I would say. Explaining the unexplainable. What could cause a normal person to explode in anger or do and do or say the outrageous? I believe the answer is a demonic presence arrives. What began as a human sin was nurtured because it somehow pleased the flesh. It unintentionally opened the door for a powerful spirit to sweep in and cause that person to act in ways they would never choose to do. Here's the way I would picture the process. A root takes hold when someone, pardon me, when something happens that injures or offends us. A root takes hold when something happens or that, or, that injures or offends us. A wrong attitude is allowed to remain because it appeals to our flesh. Jealousy, fear, a grudge, greed, shame, pride. The, the root is watered by voices, either self-talk or listening to harsh or cruel talk. I think you've done it. You're mowing the lawn. And you're just telling somebody off at full tilt. And you're just going at it. Or you're, or you're washing dishes and just. And there's, there's that thing. There's self-talk where we can literally find ourselves letting our, hear, out loud talking uh, to ourselves and, and getting more and more angry the more and more we listen to ourselves. Have you seen the cycle? You can talk yourself into a fit if you let it roll. Or the other side is listening to other voices. And this is the thing where I have such, a, such an argument with some of the, some of the political uh, talk shows and all of this and the, and the kinds of blogs that people will go on to. They always talk about they are all like this and they are all like this. And you begin to group think. You begin to put people in, in clusters and, and, and categories. And you say people like that are all. Hey, folks, that's how you turn a nation into some of the vile things we've seen in history. You begin to dehumanize people. You begin to put them in a subset beneath you. They're not like you. They're all like this. And I'm going to tell you something. You feed that beast, it grows. You know, we, years ago, they had this psychology, uh, this, this, this it was, what was it called? It, uh, uh, um, fight therapy. 
And uh, the idea was the way you dealt with your anger, the way you dealt with some of these things is you needed to vomit it. You need to get it out. So let it roll. And uh, so they had this, they, they, they actually made these, these, these uh, foam rubber or styrofoam or something, uh, uh, big long clubs. And uh, they're called batakas, if I recall. And you would uh, go ahead and beat each other up. You know, you'd put a pad up and then... And the idea was you're vomiting your anger. And you'll come away uh, feeling better and relieved. But they don't do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, who knows what somebody does. But You know why? Well, you know what you find? The more you feed it, the worse it gets. The more you feed it, the worse it gets. The more I talk it, the angrier I get. The more I, the old saying, appetite grows with the eating. The appetite grows with the eating. The more I do this, the worse it gets. All you do is ramp up and you become, you become strange. You be, it, beca starts, it starts owning you if you feed that thing. The plant grows until... An established attitude matures. Our human will allows it to remain and participates, not anticipating where it will lead. We always think, no, I'm in control. I'm all right. I got this. I mean, yeah, I know I'm angry, and I know I got this stuff, and I know I think they're like that, and I know I, but I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not like that kind of person. Suddenly, an attitude we thought we could control bursts out, at an extreme level, our anger explodes to fury, a compelling force takes over, and we are no longer in control. Something has momentary possession of us, and we watch ourselves carrying out a terrible action or saying something awful. Have you ever been in a situation where you stood there and you thought, I can't believe I just said that? What on earth just happened there? It's as though you're stepping back and you're looking at yourself and going, what did I just do? I just threw that thing, broke that thing, screamed those words, told somebody I dearly love something hideous. What on earth is wrong with me? It's frightening. What just happened? I need to put here a word of caution. I am not talking about true mental illness. There are people who do and say things because they have been damaged, not because they have gone through the steps outlined above. Did you find, uh, follow what I said? I am, there, is, there are people who are, who are truly uh, mentally ill, mentally damaged in one way or another, and that is not what I'm talking about. There, the healing process for them is very different. But that is not the explanation for all of it. A threshold. I don't think any of us knows where that threshold is that allows a spirit to suddenly come upon us. But there's an old saying, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. If we allow a wrong attitude to linger, if we justify it and listen to the voices that will cause it to grow, we will move closer to that threshold. And the devil's an opportunist. He waits and watches for an opening. And when it's there, he suddenly strikes. In a moment, he can ruin a relationship, spoil a reputation, end a career, even land someone in jail. Here's an example. I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 4 if you want to follow. You know this, you know this story. It's the account of, of Cain. 
I'll start at verse 1, reading down to verse 8. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also, say also. That's an important word in this. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Abel added, I think Abel also brought his, his crops. He would be growing things too. But he also brought a lamb. He also brought a firstling from the flock. And what is that about? That is a confession of sin. And he would have laid his hands on that animal, confessed his sins, acknowledged his sins, cut its throat, and then, then, then burned it on the offering. He's appealing to God for mercy. And so God has regard for his offering. Cain brought his first fruits in thanksgiving, but no attending to his sin. And so there's a difference. And if nothing else, God is teaching Cain a lesson. If you're going to approach me, I need you to come humbly and seeking mercy and address your sin. I can't have you simply come and thank me for my goodness. So Cain could have learned a lesson, but look what happens. Cain became, <clears throat> he had no regard for Cain, but he be, and Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, do what I ask. If you do not do well, here it is, sin is crouching at the door. Say, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the Lord warns Cain, and he says, and he pictures it as though, though this, this spirit is outside the door of his, his, his hot house, and it's waiting for the moment when he can, it can strike. It's saying, watch out, that thing's waiting for you. And, of course, Cain did not. Uh, Cain told his brother, <laughs> he's, he, you know, this is what I feel and this is what God said. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. He gave in and did something he never believed he would do, I would think. Cain did not listen to God's warning. But you and I can be much wiser. We can learn to spot those unhealthy attitudes when they arise. We can understand the danger they present if we allow them to remain, and we can quickly carry them to the Lord. See, we're going to see that the way you deal with this is you deal with those attitudes early and quick, and you deal with them faithfully. You do not let the root grow. Escaping the trap. The Bible compares the devil to a fowler. That's someone who traps birds. An unsuspecting bird is drawn to the bait and the trap is sprung. And like that bird, we can be lured into situations where the fowler has spread a net for our feet. But if we, if we seek the Lord, he will always provide a way of escape. Listen to these promises. I'd like you to read them with me. So let's read the first one out loud. 
My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. See that? Number two. Here we go. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. The very first thing David says, when I abide in the shadow of Almighty, he covers me and he will deliver me from the snare of the trapper. He's going to pull me out of these plans. Uh, number three, let's do this. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's Psalm 124. And then the last one is, is in the New Testament. This is, this is uh, Paul, and it's a promise that uh, it has a deep insight to it. A little bit different image, but, I, but if you don't memorize this one or haven't memorized, I'd suggest you do it. This is a really beautiful uh, passage to memorize. Here we go. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You notice you don't have a promise there necessarily that you'll not be subjected to temptation. And he says, there will, it will come, but when it does, God will also provide, and it, doesn't, it actually says, the way of escape. You and I will never be trapped in a situation where we could not obey God and walk free. It is always a matter of a choice. It is always a matter of a choice. So we see that the Lord is our defense. But the way he defends us is to give us what we need to escape. He doesn't remove every trap. He gives us his word, his spirit, and his people. But in order to escape, we must choose to use those resources, growing stronger. Obedience makes us stronger, just as disobedience makes us weaker. Every time we obey... Every time we refuse to cave into pressure, it becomes easier to obey the next time. Did you follow that? We all want and we pray, oh God, you know, deliver me from temptation. And what you want is to suddenly go, mm, and, and you don't feel any temptation anymore at all. It's like, I feel great. Why would I even think of doing that? Doesn't happen. Does it? No, the, 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 the protecting wall that God builds around our heart is built one stone at a time. And it's built by obedience. If you want to walk in purity, if you want to walk in safety, if you want to walk without this anger, you build it one obedience at a time. Not a magical formula. Nobody's got a magic wand that can bop you on the head and you don't have any problems again. That's just you got to stop thinking like that. It, you, it doesn't work. It's not there. What is there is absolutely the Lord will provide a way, the way of escape. We do not have to yield. 
We do not have to let these things control us. Absolutely, God can keep us. We can walk a peaceful and a safe life. But it's through one stone at a time. Every time I obey. And those obediences aren't easy. I mean, some of us, I mean, all of us have our areas. And whatever yours is, you'll have moments where it's, oh, boy. And you're hanging on to the Lord. And you're reading the Word. And you think, Jesus. And you go kind of through it. Now you're stronger the next time. It's easier to obey the next time when that thing comes. But the reverse is also true. Every time we disobey, every time we cave into pressure, it becomes easier to disobey the next time. It's as though you are pulling the stones out of that wall. You are removing your wall of defense. You're pulling them out. I'll have people every so often say, Pastor, the devil's just going at me everywhere. And I'm thinking... Where's the stones? Look, it's a process that we walk in obedience. And when we do, here's the good news. I'm getting to it. Then as months and years pass, obedience becomes a habit. And mercifully, if we continue to obey, the power of that particular temptation weakens until we are able to live peacefully. This is an important part of this piece. You think, oh, is, is life of obedience with God just one, one, one sweating bullets after another? No. It starts that way. But as you walk it out, as it becomes ha a habit, you enter into a place of peace. One pastor years ago, as Roy Hicks Jr. said this, he said, I fought to get it out, now I fight to keep it out. I fought to get it out. Now I fight to keep it out. This is profound. It's absolutely profound. He, he has captured the nature of this thing. You have a season of getting it out. But there comes a point when there's a, where there's a pattern of obedience. And you've learned to walk. And when the thing comes, you know what to do. You've, you now simply, nope, oh no. You're not coming in. And you, you know how to, it, you're stopping it from its entry rather than hand-to-hand than -hand combat. It's a very different place. And you will come into a place of peace. I promise you. There's a place where you live in peace. Not constant misery, not constant things. You're, you've, the wall is, is, is there. The obedience is there. But there's another truth to add. Even so, the devil will test us our resolve every so often just to see if we, it is weakened. And sadly, one failure can reawaken a problem that had gone dormant for a long time. But with fresh obedience, peace will return as the protecting wall around the heart is, is restored. Places and moments. There are places and moments when the presence of God is unusually strong. I entered one of those when I was 12 years old and came out changed in ways that have lasted the rest of my life. You have been in places and in moments. I think we had that this morning as we worshiped. Where as you worship, there comes this presence and peace of God. And you'll notice you're changed in that presence. You may come with worries, you may come with fears, you may come with all kinds of anger or whatever else. But as you're in the presence of the Lord, it's like that thing loses its power, its grip. It's like it, 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 it somehow relaxes and you begin to have different thoughts. 
you began to realize, wow, he's here. He's with me. What am I thinking? It's like you wake up from a bad dream. That's the influence of the presence of God. I had a person talk to me, and this was, uh, well, I'll just, and, and they said, I, you know, I'm dealing with this thing, and, I, I, and, and I'm trying to have faith. I'm trying to hear from God, but I never hear from God. Pastor, I'm not like you. I don't, I don't hear that voice. And I said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get in worship. And, when, and I want you to sense, and when you feel the presence of God in the room, I want you to stop singing. And I want you to just listen and talk to him. And say, talk to me, Lord. While the people of God around you are worshiping, I want you to have a conversation with him in that atmosphere. Do you see what I'm doing? What did the Lord say to him? I won't go into any details, but he said, this, here's the very thing you have to have. You have to hear a word from the Lord. You have, to, you have to hear it. No one can tell you about it. No one can do this for you. It has to be you and him. Because it, that is the spark of faith. The very key of faith is, God said this to me, and I know he did. Now I have faith. And it's quite easy. It is not hard. Faith is not pumping yourself up. I believe, I believe, I believe I can do this every day in every way. I'm getting better and better. It's not mental gymnastics. It is not, that is not faith. That's exhausting stuff. I've tried it. I would recommend you not. When I hear from God, though, and here's the word that was spoken to that person. The Lord simply said this. I'm faithful. And as soon as that was said, the congregation began to sing he is faithful. And that, it just went right into the heart. And now faith was alive. You hearing what I'm saying? When we're in presence, when the presence of God is like that, it influences you. The reverse is also the case. There are places and moments where a wrong spirit is unusually strong. And no one can ever know exactly where or when they will arrive. We suddenly find ourselves trapped, exposed to an influence we didn't seek. And if we have allowed a wrong attitude to grow in us, at those moments, we will be very vulnerable. Our culture encourages us to see ourselves as victims of someone else's sin and thereby excuses the wrong attitudes that try to grow in our heart. And there may be truth in what it says. I may indeed be a victim of another person's sin. In fact, I would suggest if you live in this planet, you are. We will sin against you. Uh, we are, this is just a troubled world. And, and, and listen, I, and as I'm going into this now, I'm not making light of what's been done to people. I'm a pastor. And I have heard things... Uh, they just take the wind out of me. I am not saying this, that, you are, that you're guilty or I'm not, I'm not issuing condemnation and saying you shouldn't feel the wounds you feel. But the problem is, though I, have, I am genuinely victimized, though I, people have hurt me and wounded me and done things to me in such ways that I'm left like this, that root is waiting to hurt me. No matter how I got it, it needs to come out because there is an enemy who's going to use that thing. It's a terrible mistake 
to allow that fact to convince me that I have a right to harbor the attitude that entered my heart as a result. Did you hear it? No matter how I received that attitude, it needs to be removed. Because in time, at the worst possible time, count on that, it will open the door for an uninvited spirit and turn me into an abuser of someone else. I will victimize someone else. Though I never meant to do it, something came over me. I who have been victimized, I who have been wounded, now, as the enemy has this opportunity with me, I now victimize others. It exposes me, it makes me vulnerable to the very thing that, uh, of wounding others. Listening to the warning, when we read the account of these pre-dawn trials, we would be wise not to stand back and look at, with disgust at, these indivi at the individuals who did these such things and assume that we could never do something as horrible as that. We would be wise to see it as, instead as a warning. This is what can happen when a person allows an offense, a fear, a shame, lust, greed, or prejudice to take root in their heart. That attitude will keep growing, and then when there is an opportunity, the trap will be set, and an uninvited spirit will enter and leave us amazed at what we said or did. Thankfully, God's word has shown us that we can escape that trap by dealing with that attitude now. Would you maybe clear your hands a minute and just, you just sit there. I'd like to have us pray and just reflect for a moment. L listen again. No one is trying to assign guilt and say you, you in a sense, you shouldn't have that attitude. You're a bad person for feeling those things. That's not the point at all. But the point is that if we look at reality from a biblical point of view, there is an enemy of our souls. There's an opportunist who is waiting, crouching by the door, as, as Genesis puts it, the Lord puts it, waiting for the opportunity to spring, waiting for that worst possible moment, waiting for that exchange in my conversation with my spouse or my employer or a young person or, a, or driving in the car or, or who knows where, waiting for that thing. And if that root has been allowed to grow, however it came to me, I'm now vulnerable. And there can come a moment when I do something, say something, that can damage my life, can damage other people, can do things, and I can't believe I did it. So what's the solution? The Lord says it. He's the one who takes our feet and delivers us from the snare of the trapper. How do you deal with a wound like that? I actually shared it just a minute ago. When, I, when that person I mentioned, I said, I want you in worship to wait on the Lord and see what he says to you. The way you deal with the wound, the way you deal with whatever it is, prejudice, anger, a grudge, shame, lust, the way you deal with it all is a word from the Lord. It's by faith. You put, you put 
you break the power of those things that want to linger by faith that God gives you. And when those things come up, when the, when the thing tries to show itself, when the thing tries to come, you speak to it in faith. The answer is, for this one person was, no matter what fear wants to come, or what sorrow wants to come, the Lord is faithful to me. And, it, and, when, and it now it's a living faith, and it becomes the way you respond. When that thing comes, the Lord is faithful to me. The Lord is faithful to me. That's how the thing comes out. You can't get it out by yourself. You can't just wish it out. You can't hate yourself for it. I mean, none of that has any power whatsoever to help. What you do, and what we're doing today, is saying, Lord, if there is a root in here, someone, some situation that I'm deeply angry at, some group of people that I've developed a prejudice and a hatred toward, something that is, something that's growing in there, and, and if I have in any way fed it, if I have my own voice or other voices, if I have allowed things to feed that thing, oh, God, forgive me, and I'm turning that voice off, I'm stopping my own self-talk, the self-talk will not come. As soon as it comes, I'll shut it off. I'll turn the channels off. I'll stop the blogs. I'll do whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not following this stuff anymore. I would have a heart of peace. I would have a heart of love. Come, pull that thing out. And then, Lord, here's what I need from you. I need a clear word of promise. I need to hear from you at that very point that I can answer this thing when it comes. And that it will come out of faith, real living faith in me. Give me a word, my Father. Speak to me so I can speak to it. People, this works. You and I are not slaves. We are children of God. And he has given to us all we need to pull our feet out of the net so that the devil will never do that to you. At least never again. We walk free. We are children of God. But in our, in our freedom, is, it, there is a basis of obedience. So Holy Spirit, right now, I ask for each one of us, you start with me. If it, there is in the heart a root where I have allowed, I have somehow decided that this is all right and there's a reason for it or whatever, of bitterness, of shame, of anger, of prejudice, Lust, fear, oh God, I just say right now it has no right to be in my heart. My heart belongs to you. It is only yours. Now I ask you, Lord, now for a clear word from you, a promise from you. Speak to me, Lord, that I might answer this thing when it tries to come. This doubt that wants to come. Grant me a word of faith. Grant me the sword of the word that I might slay this thing. Blessed be the Lord. Build a wall around my heart. I would live peacefully and I'd live joyfully with you. And I declare this, that by your grace and by your power and by the, by the wonder of your living word, I will never, at least never again, have a place for the enemy to have an opportunity to hurt me and through me to hurt others. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who's able to keep us from falling and present us faultless at his glorious throne. That's my Lord. I confess it this day.
Blessed be God who's laid hold of me. I'm just wait a minute as the Lord just speaks to you, shows you, talks to you about whatever may or may not be there. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things. We mean it with all our hearts. And by faith, thank you for freedom. We are free indeed. Would you say that, church? I am free. I am free indeed. I am free in Christ. He has set me free. By his wonderful word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.